behind this door is the key to it all. Control. That computer is the most vital part of Federation power with the thickness of this door away from destroying them. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this episode we are looking at a fairly big episode in the run, fair to say, Richard. Yes, indeed. And that is Pressure Point, written by Terry Nation, directed once again by George Spenton Foster. This was first broadcast on the 6th of February 1979 and a slight increase in the ratings from Horizon 6.6 million. Yes. Now, before we go any further, Richard, look, Generally speaking, we you know we assume that if you're listening to the podcast, you've seen the episode. But in this case, we will give a particular spoiler warning because we can't discuss this episode even at a top level without no, giving away some pretty big plot yes. impacts. So if you haven't watched Pressure Point yet at all and you're discovering the series with us, please go and watch Pressure Point now because <laughs> in a few moments we'll be talking pretty big spoilers. Yes, we'll be here when you get back. Yes. <laughs> Richard, you're taking us through Pressure Point. Yes. Maybe we'd start with a little bit of background, perhaps. The planning for Series B was that there would be a little bit more of an arc to the stories, and it includes the idea that Blake would search for the Federation's central control complex. The mid-season cliffhanger would be that he would mount a failed raid on that complex. And we've seen this seeded throughout the season. We've mm. spoken, for example, in Weapon, there was talk about when we go and attack control. Yes, that's right. They've already thrown the idea in. Now, the other thing that was decided fairly early on in the planning for Series B was that they would bump off one of the main characters. Terry Nation was very much, this makes the series a bit unpredictable, gives the viewers a bit of a jolt. I think there might also have been a bit of a logistical element to it as well, particularly now you've introduced ORAC. You've now got six characters and two computers all competing for lines, so... Yeah, it's something that Terry Nation did with survivors, particularly when he was in Mm. charge, where there was always that sense that a main character could die at any point, Mm. and they did regularly through the season. Mm. Indeed, even in the first episode, he has that switch where you think it's going to be all about what Peter Bowles does after his wife dies. Yes, indeed. But his wife actually regains consciousness. Yeah, she's the one who survives, yes. He's dead, yes. So he, he does like playing that game, and I think it works really well. I do remember watching this as what would have been a nine-year-old and having the, the shock at the ending. And that, that was a really big deal. At nine, I don't think I'd really ever encountered that before, like a major character just being like, just so sort of blithely killed off. Yeah. Yeah, so that's really our background. I guess uh, this is mine, so what are your initial thoughts? Well, again, just to give some personal background to this and talk about the first time I ever saw it, I knew from watching the compilation tapes that Gan didn't make it as far as Aftermath. (laughs) So I knew somewhere between Redemption and Aftermath, Gan disappeared. And then when I read a sort of very old copy of the program guide, in, in the entry about Gan, it doesn't say he dies in Pressure Point. But it does say that he's killed on an attack on control. Which yes. I, so I, I knew that he got killed at some point in, in the series. And I didn't really sort of register what control was or anything. Yep. Uh, when I saw the cover for the VHS release of this episode with Gan on the front, I thought, okay, this seems like a very clear example of, hmm, 
this character's only in one more episode. We haven't put him on any of the video covers yet. We probably should give him one this last time. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is going to be the one where Gang yeah. goes. And I would have watched that at 12 or 13. And I could remember watching it, expecting that Gan was going to go and not knowing when it was and finding yeah. out a really tense experience. Like, is it where he runs out after Villa in the Forbidden Zone? Is it that where... That actually would have been interesting, just to break in, that actually would have been interesting if they had killed him at that point. Yeah. And then really it's a case, well, we still have to go on with the mission anyway. Really highlighting that obsession from Blake that the mission still takes precedence. You're right, and coming in the middle of the episode would have been a bigger shock. Uh, there's the moment when the bar breaks when he's going over the, oh, yeah. uh, the dangerous floor, which again, look, <laughs> we look at that now and go, okay, it's a little bit obvious. But yep. when you're 12, you go, wow, well, no, no, he's okay. He's <laughs> okay you know. And so again, it being a really big shock, I remember for a long time thinking this was a really good episode. As I sort of got into my late teens and 20s and became more cynical, I saw the plot problems with it and some of the issues with it and started to go down. That said, though, when I came back to watch it for this podcast, I really enjoyed watching it. Mm. As a piece of adventure, and this is very Terry Nation, as a piece of adventure, it works really, really well. There is lots of stuff happening all through it. Yep, it grips you, it's exciting, there's adventure. Again, when I came to actually start doing my notes and breaking it down, look, the plot falls apart very, very easily. (laughs) But... I've got to say, I did enjoy watching it. I think as an adventure, it works. Yeah, look, that's pretty much the notes I had sort of as opening thoughts. Terry Nation, I think, was very conscious of you know the audience not being bored and not having these big exposition scenes where there's really nothing happening. So he does tend to keep things moving. I, I do think it is one, as you rewatch it and probably take the time to think about it, it, it is very much a, a sort of a, a diminishing returns, I think, because there are some pretty major plot holes in it. Sure, but that's not a unique thing. I mean, you look no, at some of the... No, for sure. I remember when we were watching Babylon 5 the first time, mm. the episodes that we thought, wow, this is amazing. Then we'll go back and watch them two or three times and go, actually, apart from the revelation, this is really, really dull. Mm. This at least holds up as an adventure. So, look, we should get into it. I'd probably break this down into two main threads. They do obviously intersect about half, two-thirds of the way through the mm-hmm. episode. The two plot threads I had were really Kasabi and Blake. Yep. So maybe if we do the Kasabi stuff first, because that really is the start of the episode. Yeah, and just on that, can I just say the opening sequence for this, I think is really effective. Mm. We don't know where we are. We don't know who these people are. We're not on Planet Quarry. No, and it's not specifically specified we're on Earth. It's just these two guys basically looking across the field. Yep, and then suddenly there's technology stuff happening, security stuff happening, and they're blown up. And you're like, okay, I don't know what any of this is about, but I'm watching. Mm. Then we cut to Travis and Serverland. And clearly the two guys dying is part of a bigger plan. Yes. And this is very interesting as well because this is the first time since the way back we're seeing Earth outside of those dark Yes, cities. indeed. And this idea that they've taken the sort of ruins of ancient Earth mm. and built the stuff inside it. It's a really clever idea. Yes, they've obviously converted it to their base or whatever is happening or whether it's actually another part of the control complex perhaps that we don't see. Yeah. But... We get all the setup here that they've been waiting for 18 days. Serverland is obviously starting to get a bit unhappy and feels that Travis has failed yet again. Whereas he is determined and it is that real obsessive streak. He knows Blake is coming. (laughs) (laughs) I have waited for 18 days. It won't be much longer now. It started. I can feel it. I know Blake is coming here. But it is going right back to Terry Nation's concept of the character and Travis' strategy, in that Travis will work out what Blake is going to do, 
get their first hide and wait. Yeah, set a trap and draw Blake into it. Yes. Yep. One note I will make, the security in inverted commas cameras that we see in the Forbidden Zone and later in the forest are really rather obvious. Uh, it's, yes. it's a shame, unfortunately, they didn't use the design that they had the previous week in Horizon. Look, I agree with you, they are. I do forgive it, though, because it does help to remind us that we are back on Earth. Yes, and I guess they're clearly the Federation cameras that we know. Yeah, so I agree with you, but I, I guess I kind of get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The stuff with Kasabi in the forest and Serverland's ambush, I have to say, really isn't very well staged. They clearly don't notice a lady in a white dress and boater standing at the top <laughs> of a ridge. Look, you're right. The direction on this is very perfunctory. Mm. It is very much a large number of sound effects, a few flashes, and everybody just falls down. Yes, they don't actually, none of they don't seem to run. None of them shoot back. No, um, and you compare it to, say, the massacre scenes in the way back. Project Avalon, where there'll be lots of close-ups, lots of cuts. Yeah, that was a very flat piece of direction, I think, that scene, but... Yeah, but look, to give it a couple of positives, I'm a big fan of Jacqueline Pierce in this episode. Mm. I think that the costume she's in is actually probably the best costume that she's in for the entire series. I really like that elegant dress, the boat. I think it's very smart without being impractical. With the silver tights on underneath it. (laughs) Well, they're space tights. (laughs) And the relationship and the dynamic between Serverland and Travis at the start here, I think, is very good. Travis has got his plan. He's sticking to it. Serverland is getting edgy. But she makes it really clear this is his last Yes, chance. very much so. And we are now sort of at the final exhaustion of Serverland's patience for Travis. This is the last throw of the dice for him. Yes, really. One note I did have there at this point, is capturing Kasabi part of the plan? Or is this Serverland just letting her, you know, when she sees her, letting her desire for revenge get the better of her? Because the dialogue sort of seems to suggest both at different points. But you would think if the ultimate plan is to let Blake get into control and then spring the trap and just scoop everybody up, by going out and capturing Kasabi, you do have the very real risk that it might scare Blake off. Given the way that they interrogate Kasabi about the homing device, mm. I think it was part of the plan, but that could just be Travis running with what's happened now. Yes, well, that's the thing. Because Serverland definitely does take control. Well, very much so. It is, you know, Kasabi's mine. Kasabi, at last. Worth an 18-day wait, Supreme Commander. Oh, Travis. I've waited longer than that. Very well played. Yeah, it is. But you just sort of have the feeling that really, if it is this big elaborate trap, that surely you would actually want everybody in before you close it. Just one of those sort of things that maybe another draft of the script might have cleared up. It is. But what is very definite there is the relationship between Servland and Kasabi. Oh, yes. Well, that's sort of where we move into next. And that is really well done. It is. Particularly that line where Travis is talking about the background. And he says, some you know, bright cadet dobbed her in. And then you get Serverland's line. That woman was a senior political officer in Space Command. I am aware of her background. She taught officer cadets, but what she was teaching was treason. Until a very bright young cadet reported her. Yes, Travis. I was. A very bright cadet. You. You reported her. There was an official inquiry, during which the stupid fools let her escape. I'll make sure that doesn't happen this time. You'll stay here, Travis. But... Kasabi is mine. 
it just sets up this relationship so well. And it's interesting to see here Servalan being the obsessive one. Yes, I think the stuff between Servalan and Kasabi is probably the highlight of the episode, those two scenes where Kasabi's being interrogated. Again, it does draw into that theory that we've been developing as we've done this podcast about there being some sort of educated middle class, Mm. upper class that control things. It's where the officers are drawn from. It's where the elite are drawn from. That political stuff actually matters to them. It tells us quite clearly that Servalan is obviously from an upper echelon family. She's connected enough that an assessment from the officer training that, that she was unsuitable for command can just be brushed under the carpet. Yes. Possibly more from weapon, that idea that the Federation is less of a meritocracy, really. And probably also that the Federation, maybe initially in the early days, had some vaguely noble ideas, but obviously as people like Servalan and the others that they say are decadent and corrupt have come into power and start abusing it for their own ends. Yeah, look, very similar to the American political class, which is meant to be very meritocratous, very Mm. even, very neutral, but over generations you get the Roosevelts and the Kennedys and the Bushes. that really are just all-controlling. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And again, both the way that Kasabi and her daughter are played is very much upper class. Yes, they are upper class rebels. Yes, Yes, very, very much so. My life isn't yours to spare. Oh, but it is. Then take it. But don't try and browbeat me, Servalan. Or have you forgotten that I knew you as a cadet? You were a credit to your background. Spoilt, idle, vicious. My confidential assessment listed her as unfit for command, but I forgot how well-connected she was. That is no concern of mine. Then it should be. It should be everyone's concern. The Federation is degenerate, run by creatures like her. Servalan is also affected by Kasabi's assessment of her that she's spoiled and idle and vicious and that she basically is sick. Yes, and it's made particularly poignant because at that stage, Kasabi's basically overdosed on the truth serum. Mm. So this is genuinely Yes, her, her real yeah, thoughts. Yeah. And I, I thought Jacqueline Pierce actually played that really well. Yeah, I agree. Now it's over, Kasabi. Servalan, I'm sorry. Sorry. I should have tried. In the beginning, I should have tried to help you. And you notice as well, during the interrogation, they've given her a bit, she's not responding. Servalan says, give her another dose. Travis says that could kill her. Mm. She says, no, gives her another dose, then gets the answer she wants. Then she goes and gives her a third dose. Yes. Just to kill her. Travis sort of has that moment of no yeah. stop. And, you know, Servalan just sort of slaps him down. Yeah. And, and I hadn't noticed that before, but, yeah, it is definitely... Look, we've got all the information we need out of her. Mm. The only reason to give her another shot is because that's going to finish her yeah, off. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I just need to make one last mention of Kasabi because there's a line in there that I hadn't picked up much before, but it's really quite clever. Where Travis says to Kasabi, Blake... He was to rendezvous with you. And Kasabi looks at Servalan and says, is he young? More in your line, I'd have Ah, yes. <laughs> Which, again, is just a lovely little piece that very subtly you'd easily miss it, but just that idea that Servalan is very shallow and likes to have the sort of the, the pretty officers around him. Yes.
So, at this point, I guess we're probably now, certainly in the Kasabi storyline, where the two plot lines start to intersect. Yep. So, we might jump back a bit and probably just look at what's been happening on the Liberator up to this point. So, can I make an observation here? Yes. We've been building up over the course of the podcast, but particularly the last few episodes, of Blake becoming more and more obsessive. Mm. This opens with Blake having openly and directly and deliberately lied to the crew and deceived the crew yes. to get them to Earth. Avon has obviously seen through it and realises that Blake is obsessive enough that just skirting the edge of the solar system is never going to be enough for him. Yes. And you do get that moment, and Jenna particularly is really unhappy that she's been duped. Yes. Kelly sort of has, the, and, and again to an extent, have the sort of view of, well, Blake lied to us, but it's for the greater good. Yes, we have really got a chance. Yes, Avon has the view, Blake's lied to us, but I expected it. <laughs> Whereas Jenna is actually yes. upset. You do then get a bit of an unreasonably well-disguised uh, exposition to set up exactly what control is and how it functions. Plus the idea that there's been numerous attempts to destroy it in the past, all of which have failed. But again, that sort of obsessive thing from Blake, Blake thinks he can do it. There have been many attempts to destroy it. They've all failed. That's true, isn't it, Blake? Yes, there have been massive rocket attacks from space, ground assault, every kind of attack. Control still operates untouched. Armies can't do it, space fleets can't do it, but we can, is that it? For the past year now, I've been collating all the information I could find. With Orak's help, I now know more about control than anyone outside the senior echelon of the Federation. I think I can destroy it. And that line, I think, really does set up where we're going in this episode. I agree. The concept of control is a really good one. It's one that does have the gravitas to sort of push us through a whole season of arc. Now, we know that control is a fake, and that means that watching the episode again where he talks about how rocket attacks and everything haven't worked, Mm. we know that you could have a successful enough rocket attack that that whole area is a smouldering crater. And it wouldn't have worked because there is nothing there for it to work. No, that's right. One positive note here I did have also... It's not really presented as a case of we smash control and the Federation is totally obliterated. Mm. It is a case this is a staggering blow that would render them really weak and leave them more vulnerable to more uprisings. No, no, it's about, well, this would disrupt food supplies, it would disrupt the military, it would disrupt public transport, and therefore in that atmosphere... It would be a lot easier for resistance groups to operate and a lot easier for them to actually topple. Yes, and also, as Avon points out later on, would allow a lot of the outer planets that have perhaps been trying to resist to actually finally get there. Yes. Either because the Federation couldn't control it or as the military had to withdraw back to its core mm. systems. Now, I want to talk about the scene where the crew agrees to go along with Blake. Ah, yes. Because it's really interesting on a number of levels. Gan and Villa and Callie and Jenna have clearly had a little bit of a mini-conference mm-hmm. and they've agreed that they will go along with Blake but their condition is that if it's looks like a suicide mission, Blake will pull out. Blake accepts this, but importantly, he makes it clear he decides what a suicide mission is. And that, to me, particularly as a viewer, sort of said, well, Blake's never going to make that call. No, of course not. And that foreshadows where we're going. The other thing is that Blake has clearly assumed that this is the way the crew are going to go because he doesn't stop and plan there. He's like, thank you very much. You two go kid it out. He knows exactly what he wants to do. Yes, it is that manipulation of the crew. He does the big thing about, I'm not going to ask any of you to risk your lives. I'm not going to ask you, knowing damn well that they're clearly going to say, well, of course we will. The other note I had here is, it is very much set up. There is Blake, there is Avon, and then there are some other people on the ship. Yes, the other people have their own conversation. Yep. Avon gets a one-on-one with Blake. Yes. Yes, and 
in there, Avon basically says to Blake, and Blake admits it, he couldn't do it without Avon. He no. needs Avon. Yes, he does. We here get, well, probably the first outright statement from Avon that he wants the ship. I mean, look, he's clearly inferred that he finds Blake's crusade odious. There will be time when he won't be making the decisions he's had an opportunity to run out on them before. Yes, before it's always been couched in terms of a control between Avon and Blake. Yes. Now it is very directly said he just wants the liberator. Yes, you go off onto Earth to lead the revolution and I am taking the ship. And the expectation is what the others want here really doesn't matter. He needs Blake's buy-in that Blake can give him the ship. Yes, it's a very, very well-played scene. With you running the campaign on Earth, Somebody has to take charge of all this. <laughs> you want the Liberator? Exactly. If we succeed, the destruction of control gives us both what we want. Could be you're planning just a little far ahead. Perhaps. But sooner or later, I will have my chance. There's no hurry. It is mentioned here that there are multiple resistance movements on Earth at this moment. Mm. So that does give that feeling that, as we saw again in the way back, there are multiple cells always working against the administration on yep. Earth and that Blake would be the one to require them to lead. Yes, that's the note I had, that Blake clearly is the big name in rebellion circles. You know, you are the only one that they would all follow. Yes, he's the Michael Collins, the Mandela... Arafat, you know, those sort of names. Yes, it means obviously therefore that the plan right back at the start of the series to discredit him clearly failed completely. Yes. You know, no, nobody has written Blake off as, you know, you're a convicted child molester. No. But they then arrive at Earth. Yes. Now there is a nice pause there, yes. just for a moment. I mean, look, it mainly focuses on Jenna, but there is a nice pause that this is the first time they've come back to Earth since the very start. No, that is true. It is a really nicely done moment. Flight completed. We are in stationary orbit within teleport range of the planet Earth. Put it on the screen, Zen. It's been a long time. This is the point where really the two initial plots start to intersect. We again have the scene where Blake's obsessive personality, he stays well past obviously whatever the allotted time was for the rendezvous. Yes. The crew are now starting to get a bit antsy that your friends clearly aren't coming. He does the whole, we'll give it one more hour. We do, of course, then get the last-minute reprieve. Yes, well, that's television that happens. Yes, indeed, just as they're about to, to head off. There was another nice line there about Blake trusting Kasabi's people about as much as he trusts Avon. <laughs> <laughs> Which could be taken a couple of ways. Yes, I think we know could. the way we take it. What, again, is interesting is that Blake's lying to the crew continues as the episode goes on. Mm. And what's interesting is watching the way that the crew reacts to that. So Blake has gone down. He realised that something has not happened. He hasn't met up with Kasabi. He still wants to do it. Now, arguably, this now meets the criteria of this is now a suicide mission and you should mm -hmm. pull out. So Blake is now potentially going against his promise. Yep. But he openly lies to them and says that everything's okay. Yes. When he's asked, well, have you met with Kasabi? He ignores that. Avon doesn't comment on it, but clearly acknowledges it. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, particularly given the way that Villa's been written in a couple of episodes previously, it is Villa who's the shrewd one here that actually goes, no, he hasn't met up with Kasabi. This means something, and this yep. is a problem. Mm -hmm. And Villa, it's not done as cowardly, Villa, like, I want to go, I want to go. It's like, something's up here, and we need to be yeah. aware of this. Yep. Could be worse. We could be down there with them. I prefer that to being here. 
You're welcome to take my place when the time comes. If it comes. What do you mean? Something's not right. He's failed to make contact with Kasabi. Exactly. But Kasabi's signal came from the rendezvous point. Blake has arrived there and failed to make contact. That doesn't necessarily mean anything disastrous. Perhaps they're just being extra careful. Let's hope so. Because I have a feeling that we are not being careful enough. You do have to say, look, the crew don't put their foot down and say, well, fine, look, unless you tell us what's going on, we're pulling out. I mean, yes. look, even Gan starts calling Blake out. Yes, and I think everyone takes the view that, look, I'm about to see him face-to-face in a moment. We can do this face-to-face. Yes, I suppose there is also the thing, and this perhaps is a little later in the episode, but Avon, in some ways, once they start going ahead with the raid anyway, Avon is kind of trapped because he's actually expecting a physical reward for destroying control. So if he says, well, look, this is too hard for me, I'm pulling out, and they do somehow manage to succeed... He obviously has lost his chance to get the ship. Yes, you, you get the sense that Avon is balancing now his instinct for survival mm. versus his desire to get the ship. Yes. But as you say, he can't take the risk that if he errs on the side of survival and Blake succeeds anyway, he loses everything. Exactly. But I guess we're now obviously in the scene where we're in the creek. Look, Villa and Avon have done their investigation of the Forbidden Zone. Yes, which is very well done. No, no, more explosions. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> which is quite well done. And again, they're teleported out just as the explosions go off. Yes. But we also have the scene where Blake and Gain have encountered Veron. Now, I'm going to say the Veron stuff here... Look, there are a couple of reasonable plot holes here around what happens in the crypt... This is not particularly well done, this segment of the episode. No, look, this is by far the weak link of the whole episode. I think it's the weak link in terms of the drama slowing down a bit. It's the weak link in terms of Veron's acting, frankly, not being as good as the rest of the cast. Yes. And it also is the weak link, as you say, in that several dumb things need to happen to make the plot work at this point. Yes, unfortunately, I get the impression Terry Nation's very clearly, he's written this, what he thinks is a really clever idea of how they're going to get across the field and into control. And unfortunately, now he's got to contrive stuff so they're trapped on Earth, but they can still do the really clever thing to get into control. So, yeah, as I say, on a first viewing, it works. Yeah. And if you're just watching this go out on an evening and you're watching it, it works. It's fun. It's adventurous. It just doesn't stand up to screen. No, you do have to ask, though, given they have got their guns, why they don't just blast the door open. But well, again, they need to have their guns for stuff to happen later on. It is very much plot happens because plot needs to happen. Yes, well, it gives Gan something to do, I suppose. It does, but again, Travis's whole plan now is at risk just because Gan was able to break down the door. Indeed. I guess they do get to the point, look, with the raid... Now, obviously, going on and trying to complete their mission really now is their only hope of survival. If they can somehow smash control, they will at least succeed in that part of it. Yeah, plus Blake just wants to succeed. I did note here something that surprised me is they arrive at the control compound at the Forbidden Zone as a group with only 10 minutes to go in the episode. Yes, indeed. My memory had always been that that stuff in control was about half the episode, but it is literally only the last 10 minutes. Yes, it is. One other final note I had just before we move off that is, why is Veron not affected by the gas? Because she throws the gas canister in. Yes. And very clearly just comes down the stairs, they're all knocked out, walks through the gas, takes their teleport bracelets and walks out again. Yes, for something that is potent enough to knock them out very quickly... Again, all that stuff in the crypt just doesn't quite work. I think it's actually more just lazy direction, but... Yeah, look, possibly. But the other thing that's interesting to me, I don't know whether this is by design or just the way it was acted or completely just my reading of it, but the way that Gan 
reacts to Veron, I found just a little bit creepy as well. Yeah, I guess given that whole idea of Gan as a, as a sex offender yes. type idea that he's, he's the one putting his arm around her and don't be frightened, it's okay, you know, we're friends. It yeah. could be read in a slightly creepy way. Anyway, they arrive at control at the Forbidden Zone. I guess we've had the exposition there that reason they can't just teleport either into the complex or right up to the blockhouse door. So, of course, they do have to cross the field. Yes, which is a great scene. And again, 12-year-old me thought that was utterly fantastic. Indeed, and I do remember doing the, <gasps> when Avon falls and, yep. and there's explosions going off around him. But, of course, they do cross the field, do some very large explosions. Yes. Yes, which I think were a bit of a problem for the cast. The BBC visual effects and pyrotechnic guys, I think, got a little bit carried away, as usual. And they were some quite big and quite close explosions, too. Yes, well, it's the old story of they would order it enough explosives to definitely get through the episode and if it was the last shot of the day <laughs> they'll just use everything that was left over yeah. and this clearly was the last shot of the day Gareth Thomas said there was nothing like having explosions going off right up your ass, basically <laughs> to make you run fast <laughs> <laughs> one sort of sidestep here while their crew are getting into the complex we do cross back to Servalan and Travis and Servalan really berating Travis that capturing Veron was his only success so far and mm. Travis obviously is very confident. They have to have their teleport bracelets. They're mine. The luck is going my One way, way now. It's, it's my, my turn. <laughs> Are you beginning to have doubts, Travis? No, it won't fail. I hope not. There'll be no second chances. I won't need them. It's running my way now. The luck has changed. It's my turn. Capturing the girl was the only luck you've had so far. That single event has given me total control of the situation. All that sort of stuff, which, again, it shows how he clearly knows he's on his last chance, but he feels now he's really got them where he wants them. And if we could just stay on Travis for a bit longer as well, we get the scene where he knows how to think like Blake and, you know, (laughs) where where would he go? He'd go to the most dangerous place, which it's a little cheesy and it does require a lot of talking to yourself acting from Brian Crouch. Yes, indeed. But it does work. There's still a way. You have to think like Blake. Think how he would act in a situation like this. Now, where is the most dangerous place he could go? The last place we would think of searching for him. The Forbidden Zone. He'd go into the Forbidden Zone. That's what he came for and that's where he'll go. Come on! We then get what is a pivotal scene, both for the episode but also for this series, which is where finally Servalan has to put herself on the line. Mm -hmm. Up until now, Servalan has always been able to say, I've sent Travis out. Travis has got various plans. I'm signing off on them from a distance, but I'm not personally involved. If it goes badly, it's all Travis. Yep. Now when she has to put her authority on the line and get the defences around control knocked out, yep. she is now personally linked to the outcome yes, here. Indeed. And there is now no way that Travis can get away from failure here. No, exactly. Both our heads are on the block now, Travis. This must not fail. Our heroes, of course do succeed to get into the complex, and we have some nice use of different coloured lighting. Yeah, it's Uh, very effective. Yeah. Just changing the light gives the idea we're getting deeper into the complex. Yes, that's right. We have a sort of another 
perfunctory hazard, the death of the Daleks' floor. I was about to say another, <laughs> another Terry trope. Just yes, yeah. one more obstacle to stop them from getting to the climax of the episode. It would have been nice if you'd have actually seen maybe a couple of the defence computers or whatever that Avon was talking about that he had to maybe knock out on their way through. But maybe that happened off camera. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always saw Avon as being more useful once they actually got into control. Yeah. Presumably the control computer didn't come with a great big off switch. No, so probably Avon not. would have to do some stuff there. Blake gets not just obsessive now, he gets manic. Yeah, you know, he grabs Villa. Come on, open, open. Come on. I'll have to try another way. It means starting all over again. Take all the time you want. You can do it. You watch Avon just sort of watching Blake just as he gets more and more worked up. Even Villa is like, who is this guy? This isn't Blake, this is... Psycho Blake. Psycho Blake, yeah, yeah. yeah. Notice Phil doesn't have his box of tricks with him. He clearly just whips some stuff out of his pocket. Clearly, no, but, no, but we at least are still in the territory where Villa actually does do stuff. Yes. And he, and he manipulates stuff, etc. So Yes, that's fine. He's working on the little punch card or whatever it is that he puts in. Yes. And then, of course, we get the best-known scene of the episode where the door oh, yes. does finally open and Blake comes charging into the room with his arms spread. We've done it! We've done it! Now, interesting to note there, Blake goes in that sentence from we've done it yes. to I've, I've done, done it. it. Yes. And I should also just quickly tell the anecdote about the first time that a bunch of us went to a Doctor Who convention <laughs> at a certain hotel in North Sydney. Yes, And uh, the, the lifts of that hotel were pretty terrible, but we realised that there was a sort of a back passageway yes, from our floor the down to yes, backstairs right. from our floor down to the convention centre the design of which was extremely similar yeah. to this one. And <laughs> yes, I remember the first time we were walking through and suddenly one of the groups started going, I've done it, I've done it, we've done it! I'm... And from then on, they were just the Blake Seven Corridors. Yes, and and every time we went through, we'd start quoting pressure plate. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, even down to the undetectable room. Yes. <laughs> yes, just coming back on track again with Blake's increasing mania when he realizes that this is just an empty room you just see that look of total defeat and hopelessness you actually see the spirit drain out of him he just physically and emotionally collapses to the point that he can't even look at travis when travis comes into the room no the way that gareth thomas plays that is just shows what a phenomenally good actor Mm. gareth thomas is because you're right all the body language all the emotion it's not an over-the-top performance, but it sells it extremely yes, well. Yes, he is broken yes, at that point. Yes, But Travis does arrive, and he explains what has happened, that, that this is a fake, but... You give substance and credibility to an empty room, and the real thing becomes undetectable, virtually invisible. Undetectable, virtually invisible... Yes, you, you do have to wonder what George Penton Foster was doing during part of this episode, I think. But, well, clearly not directing Brian Crouch because he didn't particularly like him, apparently. But no, look, I, allegedly. Get, I get what Brian Crouch is doing there. It is phenomenally quotable. Yeah. It is phenomenally memorable. Whether it's the right tone for the episode, I'm not sure, but I don't care. I love it. <laughs> now, my question for you, Richard. Yes. Did Travis know all along that Control was a fake? Like, what, is he in on the idea well, that people are brought to attack Control? That's that's one of the big notes I had for probably just the, the end of episode discussion. At what 
rank or level of seniority in the Federation are you told about this? Because it's played all the way through the episode up to the moment where it's not. There is actually something there that Forbidden Zone, there's all these defences that no one's ever managed to get in, that it's dangerous. See, I actually disagree with you there. I would actually say all the way through it's played as we must get Blake because there's never any conversation about if this goes wrong, control's in danger. Yeah, that's true, actually, I suppose. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So I, I actually reckon, I'm not convinced on this, but I actually reckon that Travis and Silverland knew all along, and that's why they're all willing to use it as bait. But it can't be common knowledge, because oh, no. whether Travis has actually been told when he presented the plan to Silverland, she's maybe told him at that point that it's an illusion. Yep, I mean, he is a very senior member of Space Command, so maybe he has been brought into it at some point. I mean, and he has been a Space Commander for a long time. But it's interesting, though, because she has to go to the High Council to get it turned off. Whereas if everybody knows, or it's it, the senior echelons know that it's uh, furphy, really, why do they have to get the High Council involved? I, I guess because to break the illusion, you still require some I guess authority. So. And look, I am stretching there a little bit in the headcanon, but I, yeah. think, I think it works. It's interesting also because they've clearly seeded a lot of fake information. I mean, Blake makes the point earlier in the episode that he's been researching control for a long time, he's been using ORAC to dig out information, and that he is now at the point outside the senior echelons of the Federation, he knows more about control than anybody, which obviously is, is not correct, but it means there's a lot of false information seated there, which is what ORAC has been dragging in. Yes. You would have to think ORAC probably would have been actually incredibly useful had they had the lightweight prop to take with them during this episode, <laughs> maybe, but... Um... Uh, yeah, that's true, though, I hadn't thought about that. But, yeah, it, it's very obvious that there's a big misinformation campaign around control. Going, going back to the episode, they are obviously captured, and Travis, at this point, really feels he's won. He's got their weapons, he's about to move them out, but, of course, the day is saved by Jenna. And, look, I know you've got a few thoughts on this, but I think it's a very good thing for the character of Jenna to have actually worked out that something is not right and to have been proactive enough to go down oh, and find out what's happened. For sure. I actually think, I mean, Jenna clearly is really, really good. I mean, yeah, she's not only worked out, she's gone in, she's captured Serverland, freed Veron, brought them all across the Forbidden Zone and down into the bunker. Unless your theory is right that that cottage thing actually is linked to control. Well, that's the thing. Whether there is another entrance or something that Serverland's told her. Yeah. But... Yes, she captures everybody, brings them down into the room, and she does it all in a blue evening gown and a pair of heels. So, in, in some ways, you actually sort of think, I want to see that story, really. <laughs> yeah, look, it is a bit of a mixed thing. I mean, on the one hand, you can't say that Jenna here is just operating the teleport. No, She gets sure. to save the day, and as you say, gets to do it. But on the other hand... You don't see it. You don't see it, and because she's a female character, as you say, she does it in... Impractical dress. Indeed. Yeah, so mixed outcome for Jenna there. Yeah, unfortunately, which uh, is a shame because, again, with a bit more thought, that actually could have been really well done. I guess what they were going for was the surprise, but you're right. We do once again see here that if her life is directly threatened, Serverland will back down. Yes, and that's the difference between her and Travis. Travis is very much, and, and we'll see another example of it obviously in a couple of minutes, but Travis is very much, look, he is willing to die to achieve the mission objectives, and particularly if it means Blake will go with him. Absolutely. And Serverland really is expendable at that point as well. To Travis, yes, absolutely. And she knows that that, Mm. he he was thinking that and reacts accordingly. It's interesting to imagine watching this for the first time, 
particularly going out on an evening, we'd say, okay, it's been close to 50 minutes. Yep. They've had the resolution. Blake's been saved. In most episodes, they would probably walk out of there. Maybe there'll be another scene on board the Liberator cut to credits. And you'd think, well, that's it. They've got a way to fight another day. They haven't. No. The crew, of course, are really are running at breakneck speed back up through the corridor. I'm assuming they have to go back over the monkey bars again, but... Well, well if the security... The but they don't turned, know it's been turned off. That's true. That is true. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe Servland. Yes. Tolkien. Maybe. They may or may not have had to go over the monkey yes. bars again. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting to the pivotal moment where Gan is killed. Yes. Now, again, we see Travis is quite willing to risk bringing the roof down by a grenade if it means he gets to kill Blake. Yes. And again, Servalan is not and tries to stop it. No. Unfortunately, the direction here, I think, really fails again because he throws a grenade and then appears to run towards it. Yeah, it's very badly cut. In fact, this entire sequence is really badly cut. Mm. The roof does come down. Gan sort of gets to die the heroic death holding the door open and then the roof caves in on him. Yeah, so he holds the door open, the rest of the crew get through, and then as he's trying to get out, we assume, he, well, he, his, his foot, leg, his yes, leg his gets, foot caught. gets caught. And he's shouting at Blake, look, I'm not worth dying for, just go. Yeah, but again, this is the problem, and we have criticised the director here and we'll do it again. The way it's cut doesn't show that pivotal moment of Gan trying to get out from under the door, getting the foot caught. We sort of cut from he's holding the door, then straight to there's a foot sort of covered by a lot of smoke. Yep. And then he's stuck and then... And then we see sort of what looks like the roof caving in. Yep, stock footage of a roof caving in. Yes, and then there's just this cloud of dust and Blake sort of slowly dragged himself out of the rubble. Yeah. It's a shame because, look, it did have an impact when I watched it the first mm, time. It still sure. does. But it could have been so much better. Like the ambush shot, like the confrontation with Travis... All of these things are very good. They could have been outstanding with a good director. We all, obviously, Lord Douglas Camfield, and we thought he did a great job in Duel, and we love his Doctor Who work. David Maloney, I think, would have done a really good job with this. Michael E. Bryan. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, there, there are some directors who would really have taken this and made it a very tense thing. It seems like Spenton Foster really is just, look, no, we've got the shot, let's just keep going. The other thing I just want to say, though, is, I guess you call it acting, David Jackson's performance when Gan is dead. Yes, that, that That real lifeless look that he gets when Blake yeah. goes to check on him. I don't know what it is that he's doing, but I don't know how he's portraying it, but there is something that's just really like... Yes, you just sort of see the eyes widen and then just sort, sort of... Sort of roll slump, back. And yeah, he slumps yeah. back, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's actually a very effective little performance from it is. David Jackson. And, and again, the episode still isn't quite over, obviously, because we then have the scene where they leave and really, again, another sort of plot hole. They just abandon on basically. I mean, she makes a thing about, oh, my debt must be paid here on Earth, but... Yeah, they basically have a conversation where Veron says, I don't have a contract for the next episode, so yeah. I don't get to go up on the Liberator. I mean, it is something that I guess you don't notice unless you're really watching closely, but, yeah, surely there could have been a scene of, we'll teleport you up, and then... Well, let's face it, they've got a spare bracelet now. <laughs> Cold. So, too soon? Cold. Too... <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, they could have had a couple of lines where they say, look, We'll bring you up with us and then link you up to another resistance cell. Exactly. Where do you want to go? We'll drop you off with Avalon or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The crew are obviously quite shattered when they do get back up to the Liberator and really Blake is just, get us out of here. State course and speed. Standard by 10. Get us out of the solar system. The instruction is imprecise. Just do it. Confirm. And then, of course, we have, yes, the final sort of poignant look up at Gan's empty chair. Yep, and we're out. Yes, roll credits. 
as I say, I think the adventure works really, really well. Mm. My opinion of Pressure Point did go up watching it again. Okay. But I'm not remotely blind to the faults. It has both some plot conveniences, a couple of poor performances, and overall, as we said, the poor direction. Yeah, it's a good episode, but it could have been a very good to great episode. Yes. With another draft of the script, and probably, yes, a better director. Absolutely. A couple of quick production notes just before we go into our regular segments. Yes. This actually wasn't David Jackson's last episode. They actually filmed Horizon and Shadow after this, though he did do his death scene several weeks uh, yes. before he actually finished up on the series. Pressure Point was filmed back-to-back with weapons, so that was the second double pair of episodes. His last day actually working on Blake 7 was the 2nd of November 1978, and we haven't actually given them a shout-out yet, but thank you, Making Blake 7. <laughs> His final work on the series was the Liberator flight scenes for Horizon and a couple of drop-ins for Shadow. We talked about Terry Nation wanting to kill one of the characters. I think it's reasonably well-known he originally wanted to kill off Villa because he was really quite unhappy with Michael Keating's performance. Amazingly so, but yes. Yes, but that was very quickly vetoed by Chris Boucher and David Maloney. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Terry Nation's script originally had Travis doing the ambush on Kasabi, and George Benton Foster changed that to being Serverland. Okay, well, credit for it. I think that was a good decision. Yeah, Chris Boucher added the detail of Kasabi having a personal history with Serverland. Yes, and that scene between them is very much a Chris Boucher scene. Like, you can sense the Chris Boucher writing in that. Yes. One final note. We talked, obviously, about the crew just abandoning Veron. In the draft script, she was apparently to teleport out with the crew, and Gan didn't die in the complex. Um, He actually died in the Forbidden Zone outside. So what would happen is they get back to the surface. Gan offers to give her his teleport bracelet so she can get back up to the ship, and then they can come back for him. Travis then comes out and throws a grenade, and Gan basically throws himself on top of it to save everybody else. It works better the way it was on screen because... You do get an escalation of tension from mm. Blake finding control, Blake being ambushed, the rescue, and then yep. the escape, and then the death. Yes, just as they think they might have actually made it out. Yes. Yeah, I think that the timing of that actually dramatically does yep. work better. So there you go. Fine. Regular segments. We've probably really only got two guest casts this week. So the big one is probably Jane Sherwin, who plays Kasabi. For Doctor Who fans, married to one-time script editor and producer Derek Sherwin. Yes, indeed. And she appeared in the Doctor Who series The War Games as Lady Jennifer. Oh, yes. She was also in the series Paul Temple. She was in Softly, Softly Task Force. Not a huge career, but a number of parts across about a decade. Which is a shame, actually, because I thought she was really good in this. She's really good in this, yes. Yeah. Our other guest cast member this week is Yolanda Palfrey as Veron. She was in work for a number of years. She sadly passed away uh, in 2011. Yes, aged only 54. She is, for fans of sort of kitsch 80s movies, she is the original victim of the dragon in Dragon Slayer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which was a couple of years after Blake 7. She also had a reasonable role in Pennies from Heaven. Yes. Plus, of course, she's in Terror of the Vervoids for Doctor Who fans. Yes, and I never picked that. No. I can't honestly say Terror of the Vervoids is one I've watched heaps over the years, but... Uh, but I mean, she also, I think, goes from being a young lady to a woman. Yes. In between, so she's very difficult to pick. A couple of things I just wanted to mention. Love in the Cold Climate, which was a very big series oh, yeah. with Judy Dench around about this time. Yep. And The Ghost of Motley Hall, which is just an old favourite of mine. Oh, yes. There are two other members of the cast. Just very quickly, Alan Haley plays Arl, and he had previously been in Terry Nation's Survivors. <laughs> and know. Martin Connor plays Berg, and he had been in Secret Army. Neither of them had particularly large careers. Right. 
I do want to mention, though, Sue Bishop as the mutoid, because she actually did have quite a significant career. Not, okay. Nothing big in starring, but she played Mrs. Keppel in the big Nancy Astor drama. Right. Uh, she was the lift girl in two episodes of Are You Being Served? Ah! <laughs> she was one of the sisterhood in the Doctor Who show The Brain of Morbius. Oh. And uh, she had several bit parts in the Benny Hill show. So she actually did work with Benny Hill. Well, there you go. And I have to note, for the first time in many weeks, no one in this episode has appeared in Rumble. Ah! So that sort of refutes my comment about everyone was in Rumpole at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Brings us to the Liberator database. A couple of things that I noted here. One is that the gas that Veron uses is actually said to be sonar gas, which yes. refers back to Mission to Destiny. Oh, yes. Very good. We have the note there that the Federation destroyed all churches or places of religious assembly at uh, the beginning of the new calendar. Yes, we now establish a lot more about control, which I don't mm. mention now. It's a computer. It controls all the computers in the Federation. Yes, it's it, the nerve centre, basically. It is. Now, it's said here that it was moved 30 years ago. Mm. I don't think we'll go any further with that comment now, because this is a plot arc that is no, going to play probably out. Not. But just remember that line. Yep. One small note I did have, and it's probably not really liberated database, Blake specifically says he's been looking for information on control for over a year. Now, he then says that he's been using ORAC. Now, we do get a couple of better indicators of a timeline across the remainder of this season. Indeed, we get one next episode. Yes. I sort of took it to mean, perhaps, that given those timeline things, I'd say he probably has not been using ORAC for the entire year. I don't think the inference here is that this is a year after ORAC and Redemption. No, but it could be a while. It, it, it's certainly a while. It I certainly think. gives credence to the idea that all the stuff that's happening before and after Horizon... Yes. was weeks and months, not days. Yes, there is clearly some time between this and Horizon, but I don't think there's perhaps a year already lapsed in second season terms. But No, no, that's fair enough. And I just noted here that all of the crew, apart from Callie, do meet Servalan again. Yes. So our next segment is, look, it was the 1970s. Now, one slightly obscure piece of information I pulled out for this. Yep. Originally, the name for the main Redwood character was Kasabian. Yes. Now, it could just be a coincidence, but... Kasabian is a very unusual word. Mm -hmm. There is a town of Al-Kasabian in Syria, which (laughs) I think that is coincidence. But Linda Kasabian was from 1969 to 1970 a member of Charles Manson's group. Ah, right. Uh, She was actually sexually involved with Charles Manson. Right. And she was actually present at the Tate murders and, in fact, drove the getaway car for the Tate murders. Now, her story is that she was just the getaway driver. When she realised what was happening, she sort of wanted to get away, but what could she do? She then escaped from the group and actually was the one that got immunity to testify at the trial. And she spent 18 days in the witness box testifying against Manson and the group. So, although I think very much obscured to history now, Kasabi would have been a very big part of the news in Mm. the early 70s. So, whether that's coincidence or not, I don't know, but it's there. Okay, wow. I guess you also have the activities, perhaps, of some of the rebel groups. In the early 70s, you would have had the increasing opposition to the Vietnam War that was now starting to really turn actually quite violent in places. You've also had the increasing, like, the troubles in Ireland. And again, you're now getting into the era where the IRA were now stepping up their bombing campaigns. Yes. You're now also probably around the time that you have the Cultural Revolution in Iran. Would be not long after this. Yes. And indeed, the assassination of Airy Neve, who would run Margaret Thatcher's campaign for the leadership and was the shadow mm-hmm. Northern Ireland secretary, actually happens a couple of months after this goes out. Plus, I guess you've also got the, uh, the revolution in Afghanistan as well. Yeah, so look, a lot going on. And we've also mentioned in the past stuff that's going on in the Middle East with the PLO and yep. some of those things as well. Yep. 
Now, probably into our slightly lighter segments, for the last time, Gan Watch. Gan has a lot to do in this episode, appropriately. Yes. Well, yes and no. He's well, he only... gets lined. Well, he does. But it's not really that thing where the companion... You know, if, if this was a Doctor Who episode, there would be that thing there last episode. They would get a lot to do, you know, give him a really good send-off. Gan certainly has lines in this, and look, he's obviously part of the discussion. He's the one who teleports down with Blake. Yes. You notice, actually, even though they don't reference it, he's still got his little limiter thing yeah. on his head. They're still doing that as part of his makeup. But it's not really driving the narrative here at this point. No, I guess Gan here gets to do what Gan does, which is be the most loyal member of the crew, yes. the most supportive of Blake. And we have seen before, particularly after Breakdown, that desire to sort of redeem himself and be willing to sacrifice himself for the crew. Yep. He sees himself as being more expendable than them. That, I guess, is well, gets its apotheosis here. Yes, that's the last time, unfortunately, for this one, really. So we will be retiring. Ganwatch, you served us well. Yes, thank you to David Jackson for everything you've done. And look, my final comment is, going back and watching this series again for the podcast, there are aspects of David Jackson's performance that I've appreciated a lot more. There are episodes where I've appreciated Gan a lot more, but I've also noticed how out of it he just was in some episodes as well. Yes, David Jackson is actually really good as Gan when he is given something to do, and we've said that a few times, and really it's not... David Jackson's fault that Gam is very much the fifth wheel. Yeah. Come on, Gam, come on, come on. Our next segment then is what happened next. The one point I wanted to raise here, and I've just written one word with exclamation marks after it, is Veron. Well, yeah, and I mean, we sort of covered this a bit in the discussion, but really, what do Blake and the others seriously think is going to happen to her? No, she presumably would have been captured or killed fairly quickly after this. Well, you would think so. So, um, yes, what happened next? Veron dies. I would imagine so. And that, frankly, is just down to poor writing, sloppy writing. Really, it is. The other thing is, of the secret of control, presumably now, is out there because Blake's group have infiltrated and escaped. Yeah, presumably Blake would start to get the word to other resistance groups mm. not to do it. Okay, yeah, that's something I hadn't thought of. And I guess we'll now, with the death of Gan, look, we'll touch on the vulnerability of the Liberator crew probably more next episode. Yes, because a large amount of what happens next is actually the whole next episode. Yes, very which much Which actually so. does follow straight on from this, so mm. we'll leave that there. And that brings us to what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? And there's not a lot this time. It's really not Avon's episode. No, it's not. He doesn't have a lot of lines, and unusually, one note I had here is Avon actually has no lines in the last five or six minutes of the episode at all. No. Doesn't even get any really sort of pithy quip to Blake when they get back on the Liberator. Nothing. His last lines in the episode are where he tells Blake that there's nothing in the room. That's true. Not a line, but early on in the episode where Blake gives his big heroic speech about how he can take down control, and Avon just does the... (laughs) Just the slow clap. He's very good. He does get some development this episode. I mean, as we touched on, he does get his outright statement that his payment for helping Blake defeat the Federation is he gets the ship. That's right. He gets that nice speech, which we've mentioned. One line that I did note down here is his response to Jenna and Callie, hoping that Blake is being very careful down the planet. I have a feeling that we are not being careful enough. Or indeed, what's the matter, Blake? Don't you trust your friends? (laughs) 
<laughs> so there are a couple, but it's yes. really not an Avon-driven episode. No, although he does get one very nice comeback to Villa, where Villa doesn't want to teleport down to Earth, and he says, I don't feel well, I'm going to be a big handicap. I'm used to that. <laughs> <laughs> so there are still a few good lines in there. Which now brings us to our Player of the Week. We got a snap last week, but who did you have? Well, I think it would probably be clear from the way I've spoken across the episode, I'm going with Jacqueline Pierce. Oh, not a snap. Not a snap, okay. No, okay. I'm going with Jacqueline Pierce as Servalan. I think this is quite possibly her best performance in the entire series. Yeah. Certainly I like her costume, but her interaction with Kasabi, her interaction with Travis, yep. even that last scene where she knows that she has put herself on the line and been defeated, she looks battered she looks beaten by Jenna and her anger at Travis there are so many good moments in this Mm. played so well so yeah I'm giving Jacqueline Pierce a Servaland my player of the week now who did you think I was going to give a snap to well because I actually had Servaland as my honorable mention okay so sort of a half snap (laughs) I actually gave it to Kasabi oh okay yep yeah because I thought really as a guest cast member it was why I had Jacqueline Pierce probably as my honorable mention because I do think the scenes between Kasabi and Servaland, they are probably the two best scenes in the episode. Yes. And I thought really for a guest part that... And she's really only in two scenes. Yes. I thought she was great. No, look, she would probably be my honourable mention. So we're we're fairly close in that one. But yeah, some really good performances and good scenes there. Hmm. So there we go. That's our wrap-up of Pressure Point. Has your opinion changed much going back to this one, Richard? Again, look, you're right. I think if you just sit and watch it and just carry it along by the story, it's really good. It doesn't let up. It's a bit like Redemption in that respect. Mm-hmm. There is a lot happening in the episode. And again, as I said, Terry Nation, I think he's very conscious of you know the viewers getting bored where you have more than a few minutes of people standing in a room talking. So there is a lot happening in this episode. I just think when you go away and think about it, there is some stuff that really doesn't work. And it's rather indifferently directed and edited, shall we say. That's a very fair summary. Yep. So that's our discussion about Pressure Point. That's our farewell of Gan. Yes. But this arc will continue next episode with Trial. Mm. Which I must admit I'm looking forward to. Yes, as am I. But until then, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Set course for Space Command. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. as though we both failed, Travis.